for good grades. I wish I was better at relationships. I wish I was an artist. I wish I had a better relationship with my wife. I wish for a life full of happiness. I wish I may. I wish I might. Have to wish. Hi there. Happy Monday. Welcome back. This is Beyond Wishful Thinking with Sherry, your host. So when I'm not podcasting, I actually do life coaching. I have a thousand hours of worldwide coaching that I have done since my certifications. I, Before I get started, um, if doing something like that is something that intrigues you, you'll find below a link to my um, energy guide. And that is something that will give you a sense of what a life coach sits and works on with people. So take a look for that. All right. Today, I'm kind of excited about the topic. So the topic is about adolescence and how our brain grows. I actually read this article in the National Geographic back when it was first um, done, probably 2013. And the article is by David Dobbs. So if you're listening to this as a podcast with just audio, you won't see how much reading I'm doing. I'm sure you'll be able to tell though. Uh, for those of you on YouTube, I apologize. This is so important and there's so much to share that I am going to be reading. And I want to give the credit, of course, to all of the different authors as I come across them. So you'll hear that as well. My first reading of this was from the National Geographic and it was called Beautiful Brains. And I was just so, um, I was really struck by it because I remember saying to people, you know, when our children are young, we cheer everything they do. And we've all joked as parents where we're like, say this, do this, and then sit down, be quiet. And so it's gotta be challenging. And childhood is, I think the most unfair place to be sometimes because we have not very much autonomy and part of that's because we need to grow so it makes sense but it also can't always be nice to not have the ability to choose always and i think that's some of the um concepts that i like to teach people because we can treat children like we want to be treated and yet understand that they are still children. So I'm hoping that this article that I'm going to share snippets of and opinions about will help you understand. And what it is about is that our brains are not fully developed until we are approximately 25 years old. So think back to how many people were married and when they were 18 and uh, all of the different things that we do and we're not necessarily fully cognitively able to make good decisions around that. And so that's where good parenting comes in. That's where connection comes in. The reason why we need to be involved in our children's lives, even as young adults. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard things like kids will be kids and they don't want us kind of meddling, like they're 16 or they're 18, they don't need us anymore. And I want to change that thinking because they do, they might want it and we need to learn how, but they do need it. So it's called Beautiful Brains and it's going to start out first with a little story, which I thought might help people resonate with it. So although you know your teenager takes some chances, it can be a shock to hear about them. I'm going to have to take my glasses off because I struggle with um, my bifocals versus my um, need to see outward. 
One fine May morning, not long ago, my oldest son, 17 at the time, phoned to tell me that he had just spent a couple hours at the state police barracks. Apparently, he had been driving a little fast. What I asked, what I asked, was a little fast. Turns out, this product of my genes and loving care, the boy man I had swaddled, coddled, and at, and then pushed and pulled to the brink of manhood, had been flying down the highway at 113 miles an hour. That's more than a little fast, I said. He agreed. In fact, he sounded somber and contrite. He did not object when I told him he'd have to pay the fines and probably for a lawyer. He did not argue when I pointed out that if anything happens at that speed, a dog in the road, a blown tire, a sneeze, he dies. He was in fact almost irritatingly reasonable. He even proffered that the cop did the right thing in stopping him for, as he put it, we can't all go around doing this. He did, however, object to one thing. He didn't like that one of the several citations he received was for reckless driving. Well, I huffed, sensing an opportunity to finally yell at him. What would you call it? It's just not accurate, he said calmly. Reckless sounds like you're not paying attention, but I was. I made a deliberate point of doing this on an empty stretch of dry interstate in broad daylight with good sight lines and no traffic. I mean, I wasn't just gunning the thing. I was driving. I guess that's what I want you to know if it makes you feel any better. I was really focused. Actually, it did make me feel better. That bothered me, for I didn't understand why, but now I do. And so then this article goes on and speaks about different studies that have been done. And um, in the 90s, they started doing studies about the adolescent and teenage brain. So they didn't have the cameras, they didn't have the ability to do that before. Um, and so that's why this was so um, exciting to me. And I actually read this article to my children at the time to help them understand and to allow us as a family to discuss how we would be able to indicate to them that this is what we were doing when we might be asking for different results. So my son's high-speed adventure raised the question long asked by people who have pondered the class of humans we call teenagers. What is wrong with these kids? Why do they act this way? The question passes judgment even as it inquires. Aristotle concluded more than 2,300 years ago that the young are heated by nature as drunken men by wine. A shepherd in William Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale wishes... There were no age between 10 and 3 and 20, or that youth would sleep out the rest, for there was nothing in the between but getting wenches with child, wronging the ancientry and stealing. So it's something we've known. We all talk about it. There's even a comedian who joked about wishing that you could bury your kids and bring them out again after their 20s. So such thinking carried into the late 20th century when researchers developed brain imaging technology. So I, I mentioned that, that that's why we now have this knowledge. So our brains, it turned out, take much longer to develop than we had thought. The National Institute of Health did a project and they studied over 100 young people growing up during the 90s. And the study showed that our brains undergo a massive reorganization between 12 and 25 years. 90% of its full size is there by the time we're six, but 
then after that the skull thickens and that's really what happens mostly to the um, shape or the image of our head between six and adulthood. So what's happening is that neurons become gradually more insulated with a fatty substance called myelin. It's the brain's white matter. So that eventually boosts the axon's transmission speed up to a hundred times. Meanwhile, dendrites, the branch-like extensions that neurons use to receive signals grow twiggier. And the most heavily used synapses, the little chemical junctures across which axons and dendrites pass, grow richer and stronger. So there's a lot going on and we don't see it. And we know they sleep more as an adolescent and a teen. Imagine all of that work going on in our body and not even being aware and that that's partially what's also happening to make them the way they are. So imaging work done since the 90s shows that the physical changes move in a slow wave from the brain's rear to its front. And so it's it's something that happens normally and it's something that um, knowing might help us understand better. So there's a game that they've developed. Um, Beatrice Luna, she's a university professor of Pittsburgh and she studied psychiatry. And so they had a game that they did. And so one of the excerpts from this article is 10 year olds stink at it, falling, failing about 45% of the time. Teens do much better. In fact, by age 15, they can score as well as adults if they're motivated. So one of the things this article talks about is Teenagers aren't a whole lot different than adults. What changes is the dopamine um, center and the risk versus reward. And that is the difference that makes them do the things that they do. So what Luna found most interesting was not the scores. It was the brain scans she took while people took the test. Compared with adults, teens tended to make less use of the brain regions that monitor performance, spot error, plan and stay focused. The adults seem to bring online automatically these things. And this lets the adults use a variety of brain resources and better resist temptation. While the teens used those areas left often and more readily gave in to the impulse to look at a flickering light. So that's what it was, is that there was a light flickering and there were other things that they were doing and they had been told to not look at the light. And so this is the part that um, I thought was so interesting is it says that, uh, they let the adults use a variety of brain resources and better resist temptation while the teens use those areas left often and more readily gave in to the impulse to look at a flickering light, just as they're more likely to look away from the road to read a text message. So that's what's so neat about this is that it's very, um, it really focuses on what our teens are doing and how it's affecting them. And so if we know this, again, as parents, we can do so much more. So. The next thing that I highlighted here is we're so used to seeing adolescence as a problem. But the more we learn about what really makes this period unique, the more adolescence starts to seem like a highly functional, even adaptive period. It's exactly what you'd need to do the things you have to do then. So if we're looking at evolution and um, all of the things that we've learned about 
our sexes. So they've talked about how women were gatherers and they had to be more chatty so that they didn't get eaten by bears and men were hunters. So they had to be more quiet so they could find the prey. And all of those things have developed into how we as humans work. The adolescents, their, their whole thing is that they have to leave the nest. They have to leave your home and they have to know how to adapt and be successful. And so we logically know that, but this portion of their brain operating the way it does, it gives them some things that they need at that point in their development. So also peaking during adolescence and perhaps aggrieving the ancient tree the most is risk-taking. We court risk more avidly as teens than at any other time. This shows reliably in the lab where teens take more chances in controlled experiments involving everything from card games to simulated driving. And it shows in real life where the period from roughly 15 to 25 brings peaks in all sorts of risky ventures and ugly outcomes. This age group dies of accidents of almost every sort other than work accidents at high rates. Most long-term drug or alcohol abuse starts during adolescence. And even when people who later drink responsibly often drink too much as teens, especially in cultures where teenage driving is common. This takes a gory toll. In the United States, one in three teen deaths is from car crash, many involving alcohol. Are these kids just being stupid? That's the conventional explanation. They're not thinking or by the work in progress model, their puny developing brains fail them. Yet these explanations don't hold up. As Lawrence Steinberg, a developmental psychologist specializing in adolescence at Temple University points out, even 14 to 17 year olds, the biggest risk takers, use the same basic cognitive strategies that adults do. And they usually reason their way through problems just as adults do. And so where, why is it different? So if teens think as well as adults do and recognize just as well, why do they take more chances? So here is part of what I spoke about already. Here as elsewhere, the problem lies less in what teens lack compared with adults than in what they have more of. So because the brain is still developing, they take more risks because, not because they don't understand the danger, but because they weigh risk versus reward differently. So in situations where risk can get them something they want, they value the reward more heavily than an adult does. When teens drive, oh, so this, this um, man, Steinberg, he has a game that you try to drive across town in as little time as possible. Along the way, you encounter several traffic lights. As in real life, the traffic lights sometimes turn from green to yellow as you approach them, forcing a quick go or stop decision. You save time and score more points if you drive through the light before it turns red. But if you try to drive through the red and don't beat it, you lose even more time than you would if you had stopped for it. Thus, the game rewards you for taking a certain amount of risk, but punishes you for taking too much. So here's the key as to why or how kids think differently. When teens drive the course alone in what Steinberg calls the emotionally cool situation of an empty room, they take risks at about the same rate that adults do. 
Add stakes that the teen cares about, however, and the situation changes. In this case, Steinberg adds friends. When he brought a teen's friend into the room to watch, the teen would take twice as many risks, trying to gain it through the lights he'd stopped for before. The adults, meanwhile, drove no differently with a friend watching. So this clearly shows risk-taking rises not from puny thinking, but from a higher regard for reward. And I love that there was somewhere too that it said that um, this higher risk for reward is what drew people to other parts of the world and settled the world. Adults that are through that growing phase wouldn't take that risk. And so there's a lot gained by the abilities that these young adults can do while their brain is still in this phase of development. At a neural level, in other words, we perceive social rejection as a threat to existence. Knowing this might make it easier to abide the hysteria of a 13-year-old deceived by a friend or the gloom of a 15-year-old not invited to a party. These people, we lament, they react to social ups and downs as if their fates depended upon them. They're right, they do. So for these young people, this is the phase where we need to be there for them. We need to help them see that what they are doing is about their development and that that's why these things feel so big and we need to respect it. We need to help them. Um, I'm going to probably do a podcast soon on ADHD because I am going through a development with my own daughter who was diagnosed at the age of 22. And there's so many things that we did that were wrong, but we didn't understand that. So this isn't a beat yourself up moment. This isn't something where I want you to think, oh, I can't fix it. We can, we can repair, we can move forward, we can understand, we can help other people. I was coaching this week and it came out that their brains aren't fully developed and this person hadn't fully understood that. And that's why I want to help and teach that. So this article goes on to say that the move outward from home, which I referred to, is the most difficult thing that humans do as well as the most critical, not just for individuals, but for a species that has shown an unmatched ability to master challenging new environments. In scientific terms, teenagers can be a pain in the butt but they are quite possibly the most fully, crucially adaptive human beings around. Oh, this is where he says, without them, humanity might not have so readily spread across the globe. This adaptive adolescence view, however accurate, can be tricky to come to terms with. The more so for parents dealing with teens in their most trying, contrary, or flat-out scary moments, it's reassuring to recast worrisome aspects as signs of an organism learning how to negotiate its surroundings, but natural selection swings a sharp edge and the teens sloppier moments can bring unbearable consequences. So this is where they need our parenting. We may not run the risk of being killed in ritualistic battle or being eaten by leopards, but drugs, drinking, driving and crime take a mighty toll. My son lives and thrives without a car at college. Some of his high school friends, however, died during their driving experiments. Our children wield their adaptive plasticity amid small but horrific risks. So that isn't my son. That's the son of the author, just in case we've forgotten that. 
Meanwhile, in times of doubt, take inspiration in one last distinction of the teen brain, a final key to both its clumsiness and its remarkable adaptability. This is the prolonged plasticity of those late developing frontal areas as they slowly mature. As noted earlier, those areas are the last to lay down the fatty myelin insulation, the brain's white matter that speeds transmission. And at first glance, this seems like bad news. If we need these areas for the complex task of entering the world, why aren't they running at full speed when the challenges are most demanding? The answer is that speed comes at the price of flexibility. While a myelin coating greatly accelerates an axon's bandwidth, it is also inhibiting the growth of new branches from the axon. According to Douglas Fields, an NIH neuroscientist who has spent years studying myelin, this makes the period when a brain area lays down myelin a sort of crucial period of learning. The wiring is getting upgraded, but once that's done, it's harder to change. So then that's why young people learn so quickly. We call them sponges. And they do that because it isn't coded yet. It isn't final. And so some of the flexibility that they have, we don't have once that coding is on, but that's what keeps us safe. That's what allows us the maybe higher level of thinking. And so again, it's to be celebrated. We want to teach our kids that this is hard and it's really, really challenging to find a balance with what is actually your brain saying, be reckless because there's a reward for that in their mind. This long, slow back to front developmental wave completed only in the mid twenties appears to be a uniquely human adaptation. It may be one of our most consequential. It can seem a bit crazy that we humans don't wise up a bit earlier in life, but if we smartened up sooner, we'd end up dumber. So I really hope that this is helpful. I hope that we can see that there is a need for community. We need to work together to raise our kids. We need our children to understand kind of what this is about. We teach them how to walk, how to talk, why they need to learn some of the things we teach them. And I think it's really important to have this discussion, find the article, read it to them, read it with them. It is called Beautiful Brains. And it was in, uh, it was published October 2011. Uh, and this particular article was by David Dobbs. And the boy in question with, that was speeding was his son. And I just, I read it to my children. I refer to it a lot. And I just really hope that understanding that your child is not a Neanderthal is not a low thinking person. They are just challenged with so much that they are going to be responsible for and their brain is still growing. So they need our loving support and they need to learn this so that they know how to ask for the help they need too. And to teach that maybe drinking, I remember we decided that we didn't want our children to drink, of course, in an unhealthy way. And we didn't really drink a lot. We mostly abstained. But I remember saying to them after reading this article that it would make sense that maybe as young people, we would encourage them to not drink until their brains are fully developed, which is 25 to 30. 
And we have a drinking age, I believe, in Canada that is 19. And so we're setting them up to fail with things like this. Enjoy a glass of wine with a meal when you're 25 and above, when you have the resonant brain to be able to think about your actions and to be able to um, weigh risk versus reward. And so just adjusting what we allow them to do on their own without deep support um, would make a big difference to the crime rates, the addiction rates, all of the things that we read about in this article. I find it fascinating. It excites me to think that there is a reason for all of this. And when there's a reason, we can have different strategies. And so I offer this up to you as that. Thank you so much for listening. I know it was a little um, disjointed when I read, but it was a big article and there's so much in it. I hope that you will read it. In fact, I'm going to put a link um, down below so that you can link right to it and not have to remember what it was called and you can read it yourself and maybe bookmark it. And if you have teenagers or are going too soon or had some that maybe sense that there's failure, I think just reading it would help them understand that that was then, this is now. What can we move forward? How can we change? That it isn't about them being incompetent or any of the things they may feel. It was that they didn't understand their body because we didn't understand their body. And so good luck with all of that. Thank you so much. As much as I enjoy discussions, I also want to provide a service to people who would like more. If you want to do more than listen, get in touch with me with the links in the description. You can also email me through hello at beyondwishfulthinking.ca. And I'd like to give you content you enjoy, so please leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're watching through my YouTube channel, leave your comments below. If you want more of Beyond Wishful Thinking podcasts, make sure to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you are listening right now.